Uh, if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7 and 8 is where we are today. If you're using um, the black hardcover Bible that Dana mentioned a moment ago, uh, page 556 uh, is where you will find um, today's text. We are this morning um, passing the halfway point uh, of this series that we've been in going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and with Advent, crazy enough, how fast that's approaching, uh, we're attempting to make our way through today both chapters 7 and 8 of Ecclesiastes. Now, here's the irony. It's all about wisdom, and it lacks wisdom to try to take on that much of Ecclesiastes in one morning, but we're still going to do it anyway. Um, so I just want to jump right into that this morning. Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, I invite you now to listen with open ears uh, to this book that we love. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to, the house, than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were, these, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I, sh I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found, 
See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever, pleases, whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, help us now turn our hearts to you and to hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in the midst of life under the sun as Koholeth, this preacher king, has been describing it and his quest to find purpose and meaning. There are both great advantages and great limitations to wisdom. And so we'll explore those two things this morning. First, let's talk about the advantages of wisdom. The advantages of wisdom. Uh, though wisdom will ultimately come up short, there are real benefits to possessing it. And as he's recounting this quest, Koholeth often assumes the vantage point of someone who is secular, someone who does not have God at the center of things. And even apart from the reality of God, what he finds is that there are better and worse ways to live. So he begins this portion of his writing with seven betters or better thans. Uh, these are proverbs that are grounded in true wisdom. Wisdom that this preacher king has discovered and obtained on his quest and his arrival at the fullness of all that human learning and human wisdom can arrive at. So first he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Ointment was a, an expensive commodity, but it pales in comparison to the commodity 
of a good name, a good reputation. As you probably know yourself, it's hard to gain a good reputation. It's hard to maintain one. It's really easy to lose it. It's really easy to lose it. It's a lot easier when something expensive is gone or breaks or disappears. It's easier to make more money and buy that thing back than it is to gain a good reputation back after you've lost it. Second, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And the context here indicates he's not referring to his own birth and his own death, but the day of birth, the day of death for someone that he cares about. There's important work that happens in our hearts and minds when a new life is added to the world. The joy that comes when a new life is born. But there is something deeper and more powerfully, more powerful at the heart level that happens on the day of someone's death. At our soul level, there's more wisdom, there's more maturity that is cultivated on the day that someone we love, someone we cares about dies than on the day of birth. Similarly, third, to go to the house of mourning is better than to go to the house of feasting, or what he calls the house of mirth later on in the passage. And he said something very much like this all the way back in chapter 2, that if all we do in our lives is pursue happiness and pursue enjoyment, we're going to delude ourselves, we're going to neglect the suffering of other people around us, and we're going to ignore the harsh realities of life under the sun. So here's a way to think about this, and maybe this will, for you, prompt good discussions with people that you know in your family, among your friends, at your work, that aren't Christians. Here's the the thing to consider. Are we, in our present moment, living more in a paradise or in a wilderness? Are we living in a paradise or in a wilderness? Even if you don't acknowledge the existence or power of God at the center of things, if you can begin to start perceiving that this life is more like a wilderness than it is like a paradise— you are closer to truth and therefore filled with more wisdom than those who live their lives as if it's a paradise. Fourth, and also related, sorrow is better than laughter. And it's not that all laughter uh, or moments of elation are wrong or that they're unwelcome. They're gifts from God when we laugh and when we experience joy in our lives. But instead he's saying that the heart is made glad that true joy really comes when we go through suffering and through hardship rather than around it, rather than attempting to avoid it. When it comes to the the harsher and more painful aspects of life under the sun, the old adage, laughter is the best medicine, is only true if what we're aiming for is avoidance and escape. Laughter is only the best medicine if the remedy is avoidance and escape. Fifth, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. And so here's the question for us. Do we surround ourselves with people that are able and willing to rebuke us? Do you have people in your life who you trust as much or more than even yourself? People who that you'll, you'll actually listen to. Because in these moments of rebuke, I promise you, and you probably already know this, there's something deep inside of you that will want to do anything but hear or listen How much better, though, that is than to surround ourselves with what Koholeth calls a chorus of fools, an echo chamber of people who always agree with us, who always affirm us without challenge, who never say no. It might, it not only might, it does sound soothing to our ears, but so does the crackling of a fire. And what he says here is that burns up and it leaves only smoke and ashes behind. 
Sixth, the end of something is better than the beginning of something. There's an episode of The Office uh, where Michael Scott, who is by no means the paragon of wisdom, he, uh, he leaves Dunder Mifflin, his main company that he's part of during the show, and he starts his own paper company. And he sets his prices really low, and he starts to steal away customers. But a few weeks in, he's told from an accountant that his prices are too low, and he's about to go out of business. And the way that he responds to that is saying, it doesn't matter. I'll just start another paper company, and then another one, and then another one. We, we are naturally inclined to be excited about the beginning of something, the newness of it, the, the novelty of it. That's why if you're like me and my family, you have something like half a dozen projects that you've started over the past couple years that are not yet finished. But what Cole is saying here, wisdom comes in counting the cost. It comes in being able to follow through. The end of something is better than the beginning. Seventh and the last of the betters. He says, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So think about the actual contrast he's making there. All of our impatience is ultimately rooted in pride. It's ultimately rooted in an overestimation of ourselves, an overestimation of the power that we have over our lives and our circumstances. There's a theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is a great name for a theologian. And he says this, God intended man to have all good, but in God's time. And therefore, disobedience, all sin, consists essentially in breaking out of time. He goes on to say this, patience is the basic constituent of Christianity. The power to wait, the power to preserve, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb who is led. You don't have to be a Christian to benefit from the advantages of wisdom like this. Even from a secular vantage point, the more that you recognize the true extent of your power over your life, over your circumstances, the more patient in spirit you'll become and the closer that you will draw near to truth and to wisdom. Littered then through the rest of this text are various other proverbs about the advantages of wisdom. We'll just walk through a couple of them. Uh, Wisdom offers some protections. Uh, For one, it offers protection from anger. So when we're angry, even though we like to think that it's righteous anger, much more often anger is the partner of folly. It says it lies in the bosom of fools. It offers protection from letting nostalgia cloud our perspective of reality. Why were the former days better than these? Every generation says this, right? Every generation says, why were why, the good old days? Why, why were the former days so much better than these? If you're older, you've said it or you thought it, at least. If you're younger, you will. If you're like me, you became old at age 12, and so you've already been thinking it for a couple years. (laughs) But he says, it's not from wisdom that we say this. It's not from wisdom that we say this. Why do we say this in these moments? We say it because we're overwhelmed with the difficulties of the present. We're fearful of the unknowns of the future. And so we grasp for a sense of stability, a sense of peace in the past, no doubt an over-idealized version of it, one that exaggerates the joys of it, one that downplays the difficulties of it, the depravity of it, and probably what we said ourselves that many years ago when we were actually in those days. 
So wisdom doesn't just protect us from the novelty of what's new, it also protects us from an over-idealized nostalgia. It also offers verse 12 in chapter 7, protection kind of like money does. It can get us out of a tight spot. It can even, at least in a temporary way, preserve life. Not indefinitely. Uh, We've already heard Koholeth argue that the wise dies just like the fool does. But when you have a minute, Google Darwin Awards and see at least an extreme but clear example of how wisdom preserves life and fools are a lot more likely to do something dumb and die young. Verse 21, it also offers protection from taking every comment that we hear to heart. And furthermore, as he continues through the rest of this text, wisdom gives strength more than 10 rulers, in a, more strength than 10 rulers in a city. Wisdom, chapter 8, verse 1, makes the face shine. It changes our countenance from hardness to brightness. It becomes evident to other people. It helps us navigate loyalties to those who are in power over us. It's a king here in chapter 8 to us. That would be local, state, national governments. It wouldn't be people like our employers. And Koalath is going to pick up on this again when we get to chapter 10. But it's a huge advantage to be a person of wisdom when it comes to navigating these relationships. How do we retain the positions, the opportunities that God gives us without compromising our convictions? How and when do we vocalize our disagreements? Because as he says in verse 6, there's a time and there's a way for everything. But it requires great wisdom to know and to navigate the how and the when of those things. So as I hope you're hearing, as we're seeing here in these chapters, the advantages, the benefits of wisdom are numerous and they are substantial. To this list, we could add the entire book of Proverbs. We could add the general rule that to live wisely will result in living well and enjoying the blessings of God in every facet of our lives. But the other half of the story is that wisdom has numerous and substantial limitations, that there are exceptions to that rule. So second, let's talk about the limitations of wisdom. For one, wisdom leaves behind a huge knowledge gap. It leaves behind a huge knowledge gap. We are limited in our ability to find out the full meaning and the full purpose of things. Chapter 7, verse 13. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And here, crooked, it doesn't mean wicked or corrupt as it sometimes does. It means what is unknown. That there are mysteries about the ways of God that are unknowable to us in the midst of life under the sun. That we don't, as I'm sure you've encountered in your own life, we don't get answers to all of the questions that we have. Down in chapter 7, verse 23, he picks up on this. All of this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So here's the point. Real wisdom recognizes the limits of wisdom. Real wisdom recognizes the limits of wisdom. Even when we take hold of all of the wisdom that is available to us, it will leave a huge gap in knowledge. The search for wisdom will ultimately show us as much, if not more, about what we don't know than what we do. And in my opinion, no one has articulated this better in the course of the history of the church than the reformer John Calvin. 
Uh, He referred to this as something he called learned ignorance. Learned ignorance. In his own words, to be ignorant of things which it is neither possible nor lawful to know is to be learned. And he goes on to say elsewhere, it is the greatest wisdom that can be in men not to be inquisitive of further things than God has revealed unto them and simply to content themselves with that which they are able to conceive. But it's not just a knowledge gap here about the mind and purposes of God, as infinite and substantial as that is. It's also a knowledge gap about other people. And so this portion of the text at the end of chapter 7 about only being able to find one man in a thousand and no women in a thousand. Hear that word there for find is also the word that means to find out. And so he seems to be saying, he can't figure people out. I can't figure people out. We, we joke a lot about how men can never figure out women. He also can't figure out men. Like one in a thousand isn't that much better than zero in a thousand. Here's the thing. Does this not say as much about Koholeth as it does about the men and women that he can't understand? Why, with all of the wisdom that he has acquired, can't he figure other people out? Why can't we? Why can't we figure other people out? Because everyone is at least a little bit of a hypocrite. That's at least one of the reasons why. Everyone is at least a little bit full of it. And that absolutely includes the wisest among us. Even the wisest among us don't follow the precepts of their own wisdom all the time. This here is an anonymous writing, which is why throughout the course of this series, I've referred to this preacher king as Koholeth. Uh, In my opinion, and it truly is just an opinion, When biblical writings are anonymous, it's best to leave them anonymous. Speculation is fine, but it's best to leave them anonymous. It is impossible, however, and we've talked about this already a little bit through the series, to escape the parallels of this author's life to the life of King Solomon. Solomon uh, put his name on other biblical writings. If this is him, he didn't put his name here. Why not? We wouldn't know. So that's why I would say it's better to leave it open with a little bit of mystery. But for this morning's sake, let's indulge the speculation for a moment. If this is Solomon, then this comment about figuring out one in a thousand men and zero out of a thousand women immediately picks up some important context. Why is that? Because Solomon literally tried to figure out a thousand women. He literally tried to do that. He had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. And think about this. That is and you wrestle with this as as people that want to be faithful to the design of God, that's absolutely contrary to God's good design. And Scripture records that this turned his heart away from faithfulness to God. Whether Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon or not, it's a crazy contradiction about the life of Solomon because he is the one who wrote Song of Solomon, which is what gives us in our Scriptures this beautiful picture of pursuit, of monogamy, of patience, of restraint, uh, which upholds this good design of God for sex and sexuality between a husband and a wife. And at the same time, Solomon is the one who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And And if he is the one who wrote this, the one who keeps himself from no pleasure, including sexual pleasure. So this wisest of all kings is, at least in this particular aspect of his life, really hypocritical. Why can't we figure people out Because each and every person we encounter is at least a little bit full of it. And more importantly, so am I. And so are you. And so are all of us. 
We seek God and yet we don't seek God. We're full of wisdom and insight and great counsel that we give to other people and we can't seem to heed it ourselves. Only the most recent example for me in my own life, I spoke last week at the men's retreat about the practice of Sabbath, about knowing the limitations of our humanity and about stopping, not when the work is done, but because there comes a time to stop. Do you know when I finished preparing that talk about that? 5 a.m. the morning of. I got up early from the dorm room where we were staying at the camp, and I finished it at 5 a.m. Because I like to live as if I don't have the limits of humanity, even as I'm telling other men to embrace them. I'm a little bit full of it, and so are you. And I say that to you this morning, not to give you and I an excuse to continue and persist in these hypocritical patterns. It's truly faithlessness. It's disobedience for me not to be one who practices Sabbath faithfully. I say this to you instead to help you gain real wisdom about the limits of wisdom. Whether Solomon wrote this or not, let Solomon's hypocrisy, let my hypocrisy, let your hypocrisy be a reminder that for all the wisdom that we pursue, for all the wisdom that we claim to have in our lives, wisdom is limited. We can't figure out God. We can't figure out other people. We can't even figure out ourselves. Even the wisest among us doesn't follow through on the implications and practices of wisdom 100% of the time. The other huge limitation of wisdom is not just knowledge, it's also control. Control. The more we consider ourselves to be wise, the more prone we are to think that we can dictate the terms of our lives. That we can bring about what we want, that we can orchestrate the good life, whatever that definition is to us. The truth is we cannot. And so wise or full of folly, king or servant, as chapter 8, verse 8 says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no better example of this than a man named Eugene Christian. Eugene Christian, in the year 1914, wrote a book called How to Live 100 Years, prescribing all kinds of wellness methods to live 100 years, and then proceeded to die at age 69. Wisdom tempts us to think that we, can have, that we have control. But real wisdom, real wisdom convinces us of the opposite. That we have incredibly limited control over our lives and over our circumstances. And one of the clearest ways that we see that in all of the book of Ecclesiastes is when Koheleth starts to muse about the righteous and the wicked. And I hope you heard that as we read these chapters this morning. Chapter 7, verse 15, a righteous man perishes in his righteousness, a wicked man prolongs his life in his evil doing. Why is that? Chapter 8, verse 10, the wicked go in and out of the holy place and are praised in the very city where they'd practice their wickedness. Chapter 8, verse 14, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And he calls this a vanity that takes place on the earth. The formulas, the rules of Proverbs, of wisdom writings, they break down. There are exceptions. Wisdom is infinitely better than folly, as Koholeth has already made clear. But if wisdom inclines you to think that you are in control, you have departed from genuine wisdom. And of course, we will have to interpret everything that happens in our lives and in the world around us through some set of lenses. 
we will have to somehow process it every time the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer and die. On the broad scale, on the global scale, we'll have to do something with the injustices and the, and the oppressions that continue to exist in our world, like this week when people are gunned down because of their religion or because of their race. Or on the immensely personal side, what are we supposed to do with it when, for example, a stable home with a married husband and wife can't for years on end conceive a child? While someone promiscuous and someone unstable and otherwise completely ill-prepared and immature to become a parent gets pregnant without even trying. Or when, as many of you are feeling even right now, a beloved and talented college senior with years of life and potential in front of him seeming to use his life for such good things is in a car accident and gets killed. And the drunk driver who caused the accident lives. Like, we have to do something with that. What do we do with that? And at times, if we're actually honest, if we're actually wrestling with that, it's too much. It's too much. And we will, and you hear Kohaleth say this, we'll go mad if we don't have a way to interpret the inequity of life between the righteous and the wicked under the sun. And here it's too much for Kohaleth. And in verse 12 of chapter 8, it's as if he can't handle anymore. His ultimate conclusion has to break in about the existence of God, about the judgment of God. He goes, but I actually know it will be well with the righteous, even though it doesn't appear to be, and it won't be well with the wicked, with those who don't fear God. Even when every circumstance and appearance says otherwise, that the wicked are prospering, that the righteous are suffering, it will be well with the righteous because God is there, because God will judge, and ultimately he will only, it will only be well for the righteous. And this is very similar to what Asaph realizes as he pens Psalm 73. You heard Abby read some of it this morning in our scripture reading before confession. We either will throw up our hands in madness at this, or we will learn to trust the work of God more than what we observe. Asaph says in that psalm, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, because it is a wearisome task. Until, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. And this is what leads Koheleth to the way he concludes these two chapters. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So in addition to the fear of God, true wisdom includes this humility that recognizes and embraces the limits of wisdom. That we are, and will always be under the sun, dependent upon God to reveal what he will reveal and to hide what he will hide that God will make some things known and that he will keep some things mysterious. As Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary, the honest admission of failure to find wisdom, of watching it recede with every step one takes, discovering that none of our surroundings ever gets to the bottom of things, this is, if not the beginning of wisdom, a good path to its beginning. So if you hear nothing else this morning, 
hear this. Wisdom has many advantages and wisdom has many limitations. There are exceptions to the rules. Why? So that wisdom might never become an end in itself, but only a means to another end. And this itself is the design of God. Look back at chapter 7, verse 14. God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. Why? So that you and I cannot find out. Wisdom must always be a window, never a portrait. Our gaze is never meant to terminate on wisdom itself. We must look through it and not at it. When we try to make it an end in and of itself, our wisdom becomes folly compared to the wisdom of God. And oh, how much more you and I can understand of this on this side of the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the best of what human wisdom can offer, Koholeth writing this text, we will look at the injustice of the world and we will cry, vanity. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. But in the wisdom of God, this vanity becomes your salvation. It becomes the basis of our only hope and our only peace in this life. Because on the cross, to Jesus Christ the righteous was done according to the deeds of the wicked. So that to we, the wicked, the unrighteous, it might be done to us according to the righteous deeds of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Seeming as folly to us, the wisdom of God can transform vanity into our vindication. It can transform what feels like, what only feels like futility into the fulfillment of the very promises of God. It can take what appears to our eyes to be only smoke and transform it into our salvation. So may you pursue wisdom and especially pursue wisdom in the fear of God. May you enjoy all of its advantages, but may you be ever mindful of wisdom's limitations. Never let wisdom become an end in itself, but only a window through which, like Koholeth, to see the work of God and to begin to trust him far beyond what you yourself can find out. Amen. Let me pray for us. We confess, Father, that that truth for many of us in many moments is deeply unsatisfying. We want to be able to find out. We like to be autonomous. We like to be in control. We like to have all knowledge. Would you break up what is hard in our hearts about that desire? That it is better to be meek and led like the lamb than to be the one who is always in control the one who is out in front of everything, who knows everything, who is in charge of everything. Would you convince us of the limitations of wisdom? Help us to enjoy all its benefits. Help us to live our lives well according to your good design. But may our hope never be in our wisdom. Help us to hope truly, Father, in you and in your finished work in what has been folly to humanity for centuries, but is truly the wisdom of God. Christ crucified for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might come to you. And so it is by that work and it is in the name of Jesus that we come now. Amen.